Thank you for joining us for the sermon podcast of Northwest Presbyterian Church in Dublin, Ohio. Our church exists to celebrate the gospel through Christ-centered study, worship, and prayer, to connect in community through fellowship, accountability, shepherding, and outreach, and to love our city through sacrificial giving of time, treasure, and talents so that it might flourish as a place where Jesus is known. For service times and more information about our church, visit npcdublin.org. And now, Pastor Dave Shooter. Grateful for Mission Sunday last week, both in the Sunday school hour and also in the worship service. I was challenged uh, by David Eads' Sunday school message and his word to us to let love for others inconvenience us. I don't like to be inconvenienced, and so I was challenged by that. And then Dale Hollenbeck's passion uh, that came across in the sermon for us to know and to share the gospel of Jesus was motivating to me. The fast-moving video montage of NPC mission-supported ministries uh, was encouraging. It was humbling. It would be possible to consider all of the different ways that a, a church of this size engages in the world and feel prideful about it, but I don't think that we do because uh, being invited by Jesus to engage in mission is a humbling privilege. It's not a uh, it's a get-to. It's, you know, it's, it's a have-to in that he commands us to be engaged in mission, but it's also a get-to as we think about in our own stories those who have shared the gospel with us. And so just to see uh, some of the faces uh, of the people that we support in Germany and Japan and Haiti on campuses, the, the foster parent ministry, the preschool, the English language learners, and, and there's more. Every time I make a list, I worry about who I'm leaving off the list and and so I'm sorry if I left your mission off the list uh, because I'm encouraged by it. Uh, that's what happens in a church is as uh, people come to understand the gospel of grace and as uh, already believers of Jesus move deeper into the gospel of grace, mission results uh, because as the gospel transforms us, as we continue to to battle our sin as we continue to see Jesus transform us. Uh, you, you just can't help but be engaged in mission. Uh, and so we just expect that as long as the gospel remains central at NPC, mission will be important at NPC. And, and as that happens, as Jesus keeps us on mission at NPC, we are going to constantly be faced with the kind of tension that emerges in Thyatira in this letter that Tom just read for us from Jesus to the church in Thyatira. And I struggled this week to describe the tension, but I'll, I'll do my best for you. And it emerges as Jesus introduces himself and commends the Christians in Thyatira. He introduces himself, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, in our short look at these letters to the churches, we've seen that Jesus' introduction of himself to the Christians is always intentional, uh, and that he always introduces himself in a way that is of particular relevance to the people that he's speaking to, and uh, that it draws on his prior introduction to himself in chapter 1. We know some things about Thyatira. 
Thyatira at that moment in time was a prosperous city. The only other New Testament reference to Thyatira is in the book of Acts where we meet Lydia, uh, the seller of purple cloth from Thyatira, just outside of the city of Philippi. Paul the Apostle is traveling to Philippi. He's not even yet into the city. He meets Lydia, who's there on a business trip. Uh, she becomes a Christian and, uh, and uh, is perhaps, we don't know, but perhaps the first convert to Christianity on mainland Europe. And she is there on a business trip from Thyatira. She is, if you remember the story, a seller of purple cloth. And that region, the Thyatira region, was famous for uh, purple cloth. It was said by the Greeks uh, that the art of dyeing cloth emerged from that part of the world. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't, but that, that's what they said. You can ask them. Uh, it was also known for its metal industry. Uh, the city produced a high-quality alloy of zinc and copper, brass. And uh, if you think in our world about, uh, you know, like mining for precious metals and the things that we need for our electronic devices and so forth, how, how that can generate prosperity in a region, Thyatira was that kind of region. They, they, were, uh, they were making this metal that was better than the other kinds of metal uh, that were available in the world, which meant that, and here's where we make an important connection, that the trade guilds of Thyatira were important communities. And this trade guild concept uh, might be a tad foreign to us, but here's how it worked. Guilds were important places in the city for those working in trades for the doing of commerce, but there was also an intersection between the trade guild and the worship of the day. And this might be a little bit different maybe than the professional society that you might belong to uh, for your vocation. But in that day, if you were in a trade, you belonged to a guild and your guild had a patron god or a patron goddess of the pagan religion. And part of what you did when you got together is, I mean, you did trade guild things and you also worshiped your pagan god. And part of your worship of your pagan god may have involved some pretty crazy partying. And so there was this intersection between commerce and worship and crazy living, and it was all mixed together. But you could imagine what it would be like if you worked in an industry and you weren't part of that trade guild. What would the challenge be? Unemployment. Uh, unemployment would be the challenge. Keep that in mind because it will emerge as one of the tension points. Um, I, I don't think that we necessarily are completely foreign to the intersection of work and worship, right? That if you uh, struggle uh, with, you know, kind of being a workaholic, perhaps, uh, you, you might struggle to worship work itself. Uh, you might have a boss who wants you to worship work, who expects you to worship work. I know from some of our conversations, at least, that in some of your workplaces, that you're not only expected to do what you're trained to do, but also to champion the cultural values of your corporation, which might put you into conflict with biblical values. Uh, that tension point 
is on constant repeat at our annual men's conference, right? If you're ever at a men's conference and we do open floor questions, that's one of the questions that comes up every year is, is how do I work faithfully in my job uh, doing what I'm trained and skilled to do, but also when the corporation wants me to, to champion other things which are not part of or even um, coherent to my Christian faith. Does that make sense? All right, I'm getting some nods. You're helping me out. We're all preaching the sermon together. So what happens if you're in your workplace using your talents and time at your vocation, you're working with integrity as a Christian, you're serving your neighbors by doing what God has equipped you to do, you're possibly creating jobs for other people and improving their lives, and yet what you're doing at your workplace comes into conflict with your Christian beliefs. That's the question that emerges in Thyatira. Jesus prepares uh, these Christians and us for a clarifying conversation by how he introduces himself. The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. They're like, oh, well, now the burnished bronze reference makes sense. That's what Thyatira was, furnished, was famous for. And eyes like flames of fire, you know, Jesus needs to see the church, and he does see the church, and he needs to purify the church. In the Bible, fire purifies and fire judges. And so this is a, a church that needs to hear what Jesus has to say. This is also, curiously, the only place in Revelation where Jesus is called the Son of God. And I think, well, that's weird because we're used to talking about Jesus as the Son of God all the time. He is the Son of God. But the only time in Revelation where that title is applied to him is in this section, and he's the one who applies it to himself. And here is why I think Son of God is not only a designation of who he is in his person, the second member of the Trinity, it's, it's a designation of his royal stature. It's a designation that he is the right and true king, that, that he is the right God and that he is the right king. And both of those things are things that the Christians need to remember at that moment in time and in every moment in time, that he is the right God and that he is the right king. And he has a word for the church. And in order to understand this word, just two points, uh, understandable tension, but a doomed compromise. And then secondly, an unquestionable king and an astonishing word of comfort. So let's look at these in turn, this understandable tension uh, and a doomed compromise. So Jesus is looking at the church with purifying eyes. What does he see? Well, he sees a church that's actually healthy in many ways. I know your works. Well, what does Jesus know about this church? Your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So love and faith and service demonstrated by action and demonstrated by growth, that this church in Thyatira was doing a lot of things well, love, faith, service, and, and that they were actually growing. Uh, that I imagine if you went to the board meeting at the church of Thyatira and the board was sitting around and say, how are things going? Things are going well. Things are, we're growing. We're growing in the love and the faith and the service things. Well, that's good. Let's have a chili cook-off. 
We're also growing in the patient endurance. What's that about? Well, patient endurance describes the capacity to hold out or to bear up in the face of difficulty. And it's a word that is on repeat in the New Testament. In Romans 5, 3, Paul says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance. This is a uh, patient endurance is a validating mark of genuine ministers, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities. Paul expected this capacity from Timothy, his pastor mentee. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. The word steadfast is our word for patient endurance. Bearing up under difficulty was a mark of maturity. Older men, Paul writes, are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Patient endurance is not only a virtue of the Christian, patient endurance is actually a grace from Jesus to the Christian. It's what Jesus gives the Christian. He talks about this in Colossians 1. Paul does walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. In other words, when Jesus sees the church and he calls out to them patient endurance, what we ought to take from that is Jesus's observation that they're used to bearing up under difficulty, that, that they're used to being kind of on the spot for witnessing, that, that they're used to, uh, to, to being um, needful of facing up to difficulty. Patient endurance. I, I, I don't like it. I, I like the chili cook-off plan. I like convenient mission. Uh, my, my grandfather grew up watching the TV show MASH and because there were four TV shows at that point in time. There was Hogan's Heroes and then there was MASH. And so we'd watch Hogan's Heroes and there was MASH. And uh, this MASH actually didn't make sense to me as a TV show, really, until I was in the military. Uh, but we'd watch MASH, and there's a line in the, in the show where uh, Loretta Swit says, you know, it's nice to be nice to the nice. I like that kind of mission. It's nice to be nice to the nice. Jesus says that patient endurance is a Christian virtue. Bearing up under difficulty is a sign of what it means to be an ordinary, healthy Christian. It means that this church in Thyatira was on mission. And Jesus commends them for it. He sees it. But he also sees ill-fated tolerance in the face of a tension that has led to a doomed compromise. And, and here's where the rubber is meeting the road. What, has, what was being taught appeared to resolve this tension that is felt between faithful Christian living and pagan marketplace influence. And Jesus sees it and he warns against it. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess 
and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrifices to idols. Now, I imagined uh, when I was thinking about the sermon that someone named Jezebel would be visiting church this morning. And uh, I want to tell you, if that's true, um, it's okay. We're glad that you're here. Uh, You might want to consider your middle name uh, because Jezebel is a name from the Old Testament uh, of a queen who, uh, as one commentator put it, stamped her name on history as the representative of all designing, crafty, malicious, revengeful, and cruel activity. You don't need to know much more about Jezebel than that, but she was married to a king named Ahab, and she was famous for leading God's people to worship idols and into uh, lives of debauchery. That was, that was the Old Testament Jezebel. And so there is apparently an influential female within the church in Thyatira doing the same thing, leading God's people into idolatry. And Jesus' issue with the church is uh, that some, not all, were tolerating her. And here's probably, here's probably what was happening that Christians in the marketplace, the ones who are discovering that, you know, they're, they're in the trade guild and then they become Christians and, and they're wising up to the fact that the, the trade guild lifestyle is going to not be compatible with the Jesus following lifestyle. And, and they're wondering what to do because in their world, the alternative is not great, that, that there's this teacher who's saying, you know, it, it doesn't really matter because what really matters is what you believe on the inside not what you do on the outside. It's probably what she's teaching uh, is some form of what historians have come to call Gnosticism, that spiritual things are true, physical things don't matter. And so it doesn't take very long to figure out how that kind of thinking would create a convenient compromise. Because you could go to the trade guild, and you could do your trade guild thing, and you could do a little hat tip to the god or goddess, and maybe even go to the party, because what, what mattered is what you believed on the inside, not what you did on the outside. You can understand how that kind of compromise w- would be very attractive, don't you? No one would call you out for that. It's possible that sexual immorality is being used here metaphorically to describe the commingling of a commitment to Jesus and a commitment to pagan worship, kind of a both-and or a a syncretism, as the experts would call it. It's also possible that Jesus isn't being metaphorical. It's possible because of the trade guild lifestyle, he actually is calling out uh, this idol worship that had devolved into immorality. And this teacher, codenamed Jezebel, taught that it was okay for Christians to do this. Uh, It's a convenient compromise. It's a doomed compromise. Because the teaching that has perpetually dogged Christianity from its origin point in the first century, the teaching that physicality doesn't matter, the teaching that what we do with our bodies doesn't matter, is only a convenient compromise. But Jesus is Lord of everything. Jesus is Lord of our spiritual lives. Jesus is Lord of our physical lives. God has made us to be body and soul unities. 
that there's not a, a strong divorce or division between our physical lives and our spiritual lives. We're to love the Lord our God. How's it go? With all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. So lest we think Jesus' warning is harsh, notice that he provides everyone the chance to repent, even Jezebel, right? You know, when Tom was reading the verses, you're going to think, well, I mean, there's some hard words in there. But Jesus says, I gave her time to repent. But she refused to, refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into a great tribulation unless they repent of their work. So there's the opportunity to repent for the other people. And I will strike her children dead. In other words, there's no future for that. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. So, real talk. We feel the same tension, don't we? It's, it's not new that human sexuality and the conduct of it creates tension points between the world and the church. It's not new. It's all the way through the Old Testament. It's into the New Testament. It's here in Revelation 2. It's not new that tolerance for idolatry and moving away from biblical sexuality is a tension point in the big C church, in, in, in the church that you read about in the news, in the church that you read about around the world. And so when we see churches and denominations move away from God's teaching on human sexuality while claiming to have new understandings of Scripture, it's the same pattern. We shouldn't be surprised. But what does this mean for us? Well, what it means positively is that God's word for not only our spiritual lives, but our physical lives, which includes human sexuality, is plain, redemptive, and hopeful. I want you to say that with me inside your mind. You don't have to say it out loud. But God's teaching on the subject is plain, redemptive, and hopeful. God made us to be body and soul united persons. We're not souls trapped in bodies just waiting to be freed. The great goal of life is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, that's physical, and mind. Our bodies are a gift from God to be used to worship Him. Our culture teaches us to worship our bodies. And we suffer in a lot of ways as a result. Constant comparison, impossible standards. Please hear me. The, the, the body that God gave you is good. It's good. It, it will break down at some point in time. But even the breaking down of it doesn't mean that it's bad. The breaking down of it points to the resurrection. Because the end goal of the whole thing is that believers are going to live in a new world with completely forgiven and restored souls in completely restored bodies forever. Your, your end state is physical. That's good news. But specific to the temptation away from sexuality pursued within God's boundary of marriage between a, a male and a female, the Bible's teaching is from 
being sin impacted, to being freed. This is the pattern. We've talked about it before. And though we may express or experience the impact of sin differently, Paul writes to the church, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That, that this is a message of good news. This is a message of good news that the Christian church holds out to the world. How could the Christian church hold out the good news in Thyatira if they were downplaying it by tolerating this teaching? They couldn't. So, so Jesus puts the church back on track. But then he speaks from his vantage point of kingship, not only to put the church back on track, but to actually give comfort to the church and, and to give comfort to Christians who might feel the negative impact of standing for the biblical truth. So this is where you come into the unquestionable kingship of Jesus and the comfort that he provides. So I, I can't, like I, I fought all week about the potential tensions that 350 people might feel in a workplace. I, I can't, I can't, I'm not smart enough to do that. I, I don't know exactly where you're going to feel the tensions. You fill in the blanks for you. I'm going to give you some high level uh, applications. When you feel the tension between what work or a coach or a mentor requires and what Jesus requires, and if you come to a point where you have to make a costly decision in order to be faithful to Jesus, Jesus has a word of astonishing comfort to you, okay? Look at verse 24. So Jesus has just said the hard thing. He's called the people to repent. He says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, and if you could just pause there, sorry, what's he going to say? What's he going to say next? He just hooked up Jezebel. What's he going to say to me? I do not lay on you any other burden. No other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. In other words, keep on with the love and the faith and the service and the patient endurance. No new burden. Just keep going. There is, Jesus says, ultimately no final tension between being faithful to him being on mission, and living out the basic Christian life. And by placing no new burden, Jesus says, if it comes to living counterculturally in Thyatira or in Northwest Columbus, it's okay. If it means that you're going to be on the outside, it's okay. The more time that passes between Jesus' returns the stranger the Christian life is going to look to our friends and neighbors. And the stranger the Christian life looks to our friends and neighbors, the okayer it is. I invented the word okayer. But you can use it. You might actually need to use it on Thursday. Well, when you're with friends and family, don't, you know, I mean, don't nod too much. And or if you're sitting next to your friends and families who are in town, I'm sure it doesn't apply to you. But if you come to a, a point where you're discovering that your Christian commitments are creating tension spots, it's, it's okay. -er. It's okay. 
among us today are, are at least some of the next generation of church leaders, of elders, deacons, women's ministry leaders. There might even be a, a pastor or missionary or two among us. If that's you, write this down. You should probably write this down because you might not know it's you, uh, but write this down. We're always going to need wisdom to know how to witness in our culture. But if you feel the pressure to compromise on either mission for the sake of faithfulness, in other words, let's just hunker down, run out the clock, don't worry about reaching out, or the opposite, let's just move on from the inconvenient teachings of biblical living Jesus, in order to increase our mission appeal. Jesus says you don't have to do either. That mission is not the enemy of faithful living. Mission is the outcome of faithful living. And Jesus' next words motivate us to go through that tension point because he reminds us that he is the unquestionable king, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Rod of iron? Earth pots broken? What's this about? Well, Jesus is referring to Psalm 2, which might ring in your ears because it's the psalm that we read for the call to worship uh, an hour ago. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Uh, in, the, in the psalm, God is saying to the king of Israel uh, that, that you are my king, that though you are small, you will rule over the nations. And if you know the history of Israel in the Old Testament, you know that that doesn't ultimately come to pass, but it does come to pass in the person of Jesus, the final king, the final son, the Messiah, uh, that he is the one who comes, he is the one who's given the rule over the nations, that he is the unquestionable king. Jesus says, I am that king, but I am also going to share my rule. I'm going to share my forever kingdom with my people, which is an astonishing word of comfort. There's a phrase that's kind of come into our parlance over the past five years or so uh, that, that drives me bananas. If you want to drive me bananas, I can give you a couple of tips. Uh, here's one way to drive me bananas. It's to use the phrase, you Christians are going to be on the wrong side of history. You're on the wrong side of history. Or on this topic, you're on the wrong side of history. It drives me bananas. Here's why it drives me bananas. It drives me bananas because my king rules over history. And one day, all of his people are going to come into his forever kingdom and are going to enter into the real rule of the real world on his behalf. Now, I don't pretend to know exactly what that is going to be like. But Jesus is saying here in Revelation 2 to this pressurized church, not only am I going to come and rule, but you're going to participate in that. That the moment is going to come when you're on the right side of history. So your trade guild might not like you, and your neighbors might think you're weird, and the way that you're living your life might seem strange, but that's just for a moment. It's going to be more than okay. It's going to be okay or okayer. <laughs> Amazingly, 
Not only do enduring believers come into Jesus' forever kingdom, but Jesus actually, actually has more for them. Verse 28, I will give him the morning star. Well, what's the morning star? You're like, well, I didn't know I was going to get a morning star. Perhaps better, who is the morning star? Sneak peek to the end of Revelation. I, Jesus, have sent, this is in chapter 22 and verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the real king, the bright morning star. Jesus is the morning star. That the reward for Christian faithfulness, the reward for battling idolatry, the reward for pursuing integrity is nothing less than Jesus. Jesus doesn't just give you a place in his future. Jesus gives you himself. And, and I would imagine that in the lonely and hard places where you might be the only Christian on your team and you might say, it's so strange. I'm tired of being alone. Or maybe it's on campus and you're seeking to live your life with integrity and your classmates think you're weird. What could be a greater word of encouragement than that you get Jesus yourself. That, that you get Him. You get nothing less than Him. Not only is there a kingdom to come into, but there is a king to commune with, to delight in, to fellowship with. What a motivating word of encouragement to the Christians that if they don't follow the Jezebel way, they'll miss out. Jesus says, you're not going to miss out. Jesus never goes into our debt. He never goes into our debt. He always gives us more. More love, more gentleness, more patience, more kindness, more of himself. That's, an, that's a word of, of amazing comfort. Jesus says, you, you, don't need to, you don't need to compromise. If you do, you'll miss out. But if you don't, you get me. And if you get me, you get everything. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon podcast. Subscribe to our podcast. And for more information about our church, our values, mission, and ministries, visit npcdublin.org.